if you're going to keep getting your money from the donor class, these so-called clean industries, you can't take the positions that would allow you to compete with Trump. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall look at the past, present, and future of the Democratic Party and the left in general. Clips today come from Start Making Sense, the Tom Hartman program, Backstory, On the Media, and This is Hell. There was a time when Democrats controlled the White House and both houses of Congress. That was 2009 and 2010, eight years ago. How did we get from there to here so quickly? Your book, oh my god, your oh my book, god. Rendezvous with Oblivion, deals precisely with that question. Why did millions of ordinary Americans support Donald Trump? You know, yeah. one answer is they were driven to madness by the presence of a black man in the White House. You don't agree that this is the most important explanation. Why not? Yeah, that's right, because, I mean, there certainly are plenty of people who hated Barack Obama. And, I mean, I remember with a sort of feeling of shock the first time I encountered one of them. Yeah, those people those people definitely exist, and they were definitely loud during the 2016 election. And you had, since then, you've had a kind of a great awakening of, you know, racism in this country, you know, the, like the march in Charlottesville and stuff like that. Yeah. But... I think that that is the the people who really swung this election in my in my view and you know this is something you could argue about all day and all night but are those counties that the sort of uh, white working class voters in those upper midwestern states a lot of those counties and a lot of these are people who who voted for Obama the first time around and the second time around and you can track this change um and if that change had not and, and also let's add into that a lot of black working class people who voted for Obama and who were not enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton. And between those two groups, uh, that's basically the story of what happened in 2016. Or I should say that's a story of what happened in 2016. Well, that's certainly where we can look to find the the swing votes. The, the, yeah. And, yeah. Oh, and by the way, I, I mean, I can, I can go on and on about this for a long time, but I didn't even realize that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee until it was almost over. And then I started, you know, I started reading up on him, and everything I read said, you know, this guy is running this one-note racist campaign. And uh, then, I, so I was like, huh, that's that's weird. And I went and watched a whole bunch of videos on YouTube. I binge watched a whole bunch of Trump, <laughs> you know, these videos of his of his uh, his rallies. And I was surprised that in addition to the bigotry, which is, you know, loud, as I said before, his, his bigotry, which is open and is disgusting, uh, he also talked about a lot of uh, subjects that were very familiar to me, uh, deindustrialization and, and trade deals. And when he talked about the trade deals, it's as though the guy was lifting his script from, like, AFL-CIO talking points. It was, it was bizarre. And he has stuck with that theme up until um, – 
quite recently here. I mean, he talks about it, about trade and about deindustrialization all the time. This is one of the things that really sunk uh, Hillary Clinton was Trump's, the way he talked about trade and about deindustrialization. This was really the Achilles heel of the Democrats. So, so okay, you're a pundit, so we have to ask you, what's going to happen now that he's imposing tariffs? Are the steel and aluminum tariffs on Canada and Mexico going to reopen that carrier plant in Indianapolis? What will the Trump supporters say when the EU imposes $3 billion in tariffs on American bourbon, American jeans, and American motorcycles. What will they say in Iowa when China taxes the import of pork and soybeans? Uh, I know. it's The guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's absolutely incompetent. Being able to say, you know, saying that NAFTA uh, was designed to deindustrialize places and to, and to weaken to, to weaken the bargaining power of workers is a true statement. To then do what Donald Trump is doing, I mean, it's almost unrelated. It has nothing to do with it. A, a better example. So China is a currency manipulator. This is like well-established. People have written about this at great length. It's, it's, it's well-known. that When he talked about that, yes, that is, that is true. When he talked about that on the campaign trail. So what do you do, John, with a currency manipulator? Well, you, you know, you can take them to the WTO and, and, you know, uh, uh, demand some kind of, of, of redress, right? You can, uh, demand that from them directly. And you can say, if we don't get that, then we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And if we don't, you know, and eventually you might wind up slapping tariffs on this, that, and the other. Well, Trump skipped all those steps. <laughs> it just went straight to the tariffs. And it's not even clear what his demands are on the Chinese. The whole thing is, the whole thing is completely half-baked. He doesn't know what he's doing. That, by the way, that was always clear from the beginning, even when I, when I wrote that story about him back in, uh, in 2016, that he, he was very good at expressing people's anger about the trade issue, but it was never clear that he understood trade at all. This could get bad. I mean, him and his stupid trade wars. Uh, on the plus side, it hasn't gotten bad yet. And, and uh, you know, it seems unlikely to me that Donald Trump would really do something that would injure his billionaire friends, you know, which this has the potential to do. So one of the things you've been saying now for a couple of years uh, is there, despite all his bluster, lies, incompetence, despite everything obnoxious and horrible about him, there is, quote, something real about Trump. And one of those things, as you put it, is, is for millions of Americans, there still has not been a recovery from the recession that brought Obama into office. Uh, and the responsibility for that does indeed lie on the Democrats and indeed on Obama himself. That's one of the themes of your book, that the Democrats could have done a lot to bring about recovery from that recession and that, that they failed to do so and that that's really the background to Trump. That's Yes, that is exactly right. And that's you put that very well. And I think about this all the time. You know, you read that quote from Michelle Goldberg, by the way, whose columns in the New York Times I really enjoy. I think she's great. But I have that same feeling when I think about the Obama years, that, that sort of feeling of... of you know, I, I just, I get so angry about it because when he came into office in 2009 and he was the hero and he was so eloquent and he had the, 
he had the country behind him, and he had both houses of Congress, and he had the meanest man, the meanest, cleverest man in American politics, Rahm Emanuel, at his side. This is a guy that should have been unstoppable, uh, Barack Obama. He should have been able to get whatever he wanted. And he should have been, I mean, he came into office at a time of deep crisis, uh, you know, the financial crisis. We're heading into a deep recession. He should have been the Franklin Roosevelt of our time. That's what I thought he was going to be. And that's what I, uh, you know, he could have had with a little, you know, a little kind of Lyndon Johnson political hardball, could have got whatever he wanted uh, through Congress, but he frittered that away. And the frustration to me is that now we are back with this. It's like it's like it never happened. We're back with the culture wars. You know, Trump picking fights about the flag. Trump picking fights with the NFL. You know, Trump naming Supreme Court judges. We're right back to where we started. A Republican is back in, and he is. You know, and it, it, it's we had this fantastic opportunity. You know, Roosevelt in the '30s managed the crisis so well and did so well by Americans that the Democrats had a majority in, in uh, the House of Representatives from, from then until the 1990s, you know, for 60 years with, with, with two brief interruptions. Uh, you know, that's the power of that kind of good government. And Obama had that in his hands, and it slipped through his fingers. And I just... It, it, it makes me so furious. Not furious. It makes me. I don't know what. I don't know what I can say about it. It's. It's. There, there's something so depressing that now we're just back where we started, you know. And that Republican governance was not permanently discredited by the crash of '08, which it should have been. Uh, you know, George W. Bush should still be <laughs> in infamy. Instead, we regard him as as a good guy nowadays. Yeah. You know, we wish he was back. So, so it, it is just like it drives me crazy. But exactly the way, what you said is exactly is exactly true. That people were still desperate eight years after the financial crisis, or however many years, and it, desperate enough to elect this charlatan into the White House in 2016. And by the way, de- still desperate. I mean, look at what's going on out there in America. Nation columnist Gary Young went back to Muncie, Indiana, a year after Trump was elected. He had spent the election season there, and he asked Trump supporters what they thought now. Most of them said they didn't really much like Trump as a person. They wouldn't want their kids to grow up to be like Trump. They wouldn't even really want to have a beer with Trump, but they still hoped he might do something that would help them with their problems, and they didn't think that Hillary would have. Yeah, that's. I think that's almost exactly right. That certainly uh, dovetails with everything that I've read uh, about the election. Uh, Trump was the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time, and Hillary was the second most unpopular. In 2016, as the Trump election was approaching, you published that book, called Listen Liberal, you warned about everything that we have talked about, everything the Democrats were doing wrong and needed to change. Tom, did the liberals listen? They didn't listen then, John. They're not listening now. And as far as I can tell, there is no, there is no listening program on the horizon. John, there wasn't even a postmortem after this election. I don't think they even intend to, uh, after 2016, I don't even think they intend to... Um, you know, there's a real problem with the Democratic Party. These are people who are uh, out of touch. Uh, they, a lot of their leadership is very elderly. 
Um, they are determined to not yield. They don't understand what is happening in America. And now remember something, the populist wave of 2016 wasn't just in the Republican Party. It was in the Democratic Party as well. Yes. You know, the Bernie Sanders movement. And they they managed to, uh, the Republicans were not able to stop Trump, but the Democrats were able to stop Bernie Sanders. And you'd think they would, you know, after the debacle that enfolded them, that year, you'd think they would look back at that moment and say, you know, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we should have played it differently. Uh, maybe we should be more open to this kind of politics, but they're not. And every indication is that that Bernie Sanders style uh, populism is still rolling in this country. Those people are still mad. Jeff Cohen is with us, media critic and lecturer, founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media at the Ithaca College, where he's an associate professor of uh, journalism. His most recent book, Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media. He was the senior producer of MSNBC's Phil Donahue program, uh, founder of Fairness and Accurate CNN Reporting, FAIR, co-founder of RootsAction.org. His website is JeffCohen.com. There's a new movie out, AllGovernmentsLie.com. You can check it out. And, uh, uh, Jeff, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you. It's jeffcohen.org. .org. Thank you very yeah. much. Uh, and, in fact, that's what it says right here, jeffcohen.org, if I, if I said it wrong. Um, the, uh, the Democratic Party did this um, uh, aut- Democratic a- autopsy report that, that uh, you edited. Do I have that right? Um. I edited this report that people can find. It's 33 pages. It published a year after the election. It's called DemocraticAutopsy.org. And the reason a bunch of Democratic Party and progressive activists did the autopsy themselves, Tom, is because the Democratic Party leadership refused to do one. Uh-huh. Okay. So it's an, it's an independent research paper on why did the disaster of Trump defeating Hillary, why did it happen, and what can be changed so it doesn't happen again. So what are the conclusions that you all came to? Um, there are two areas. One is the Democratic Party has to change its policy orientation. And then the second area is the Democratic Party has to change the way it operates, the way it does voter outreach, the way it campaigns. Okay. So, you know. Take the first um, one first. Yeah, the listeners of your show know what the policy agenda would be. I hear you talking about it week after week, a policy agenda that's popular with the vast majority of people, not just Democrats. It's raising the military, I'm sorry, raising the minimum wage, uh, having health care for all, Medicare for all, enhanced Medicare for all, having free public college education, uh, loosening and relieving people of college debt, creating green jobs programs. The policy agenda, we know that a progressive agenda is the only way to defeat a populist charlatan like Trump. And there are going to be populist charlatans like Trump coming year after year after year. And the only way you defeat a phony populist who tries to appeal to white working class voters when he's got really policies that just are a giveaway to big corporations, the only way you can defeat that person in the policy front is with the full progressive populist agenda. In other words, the only way to defeat a phony populist is with real populism. Damn right. 
And yeah. that's what the and that's what this autopsy and believe me, uh, I was an editor. It's a 33 page report. Anyone can read it at democraticautopsy.org. It lays this out with a lot of data and polling data and survey data. The second area, Tom, that needs to be changed is how the Democratic Party organizes, operates, campaigns. Okay. Uh, what we found, I could summarize what they do wrong in an incredible quote from Senator Schumer, who is soon to be the Democratic Party leader in the Senate in July of 2016, just four months before the disaster of Trump defeating Clinton. He said this, he said, for every working class Democrat that we lose in Western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and we can repeat that in Ohio, Illinois, and Pennsylvania, unquote. Yeah, and Harry Truman, Harry Truman famously said, when a voter is, given the, is speaking directly to that, what you're talking about, um, Harry Truman, uh, you know, who himself could be accused of, of you know, being a, a little too middle of the road, but nonetheless yeah. uh, said when the American voter is presented with a choice between a Republican or a Democrat who acts like a Republican, they will choose the real Republican every time. Darn right. And so, so I mean, and when Schumer says, hey, we don't need the working class Democrats in western Pennsylvania, which is basically the Rust Belt, because we're going to pick up two moderate Republicans. That's how they spend their in the suburbs of Philly. Uh, that's how they spent their money. Well, this they comes did. out of the theory. Yeah. Al Fromm wrote a book about this, you know, yeah. uh, about how uh, he and Bill Clinton basically put together this Democratic Leadership Council thing in 1991, the DLC, and explicitly they were going and, and, and uh, uh, Thomas Frank, his book, Listen Liberal, yeah. you know, just really lays into this in great detail, as I'm sure you know. Um, yeah. That explicitly we the because Reagan has been had been so successful in the 1980s and Reaganism in the 1990s had been so successful at destroying unions in the United States and putting them on the run so that unions could not be major political forces, you know, the sources of money, basically, for the Democratic Party and things like so-called tort reform, limiting the amount that people could sue for. Uh, harming the the trial lawyers who were the other major source of revenue for the Democratic Party, that we've got to find a new source of income if we're going to run campaigns. Now, this was before the Internet was a big thing and you had to buy network television. And how do you come up with hundreds of millions of dollars to buy network television? Uh, well, let's pick some industries, some clean industries that we can get into bed with, specifically banking and insurance yes. and pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And, you know, these are companies that, you know, are not controversial. People don't hate them. They're not associated with pollution. Um, they're not associated with corruption. Uh, let's throw our lot in with these companies. They'll give us big, big financial support and we'll ride to the presidency. And it actually worked for Clinton in the 90s. Yeah, it can't work anymore. Well, and I mean, that's the point. You're, yeah, you're explaining why they have the moderate, vacillating, uninspiring uh, political agenda. If you're going to keep getting your money from the donor class, these so-called clean industries, you can't take the positions that would allow you to compete with Trump, the actual progressive populist. Right. You can't argue that that the Postal Service should be also become a bank for low income people and do away with payday lending. Uh, you know, if you're taking money from banks, no for doubt. example. No doubt. All right. So so that's how they raise the money. And what what the Democratic Autopsy dot org also talks about is how they spent the money. If you decide that you're going to go after allegedly moderate Republican voters in Philadelphia, if there are any left in the suburbs, that means 
that you're going to have these wealthy white people who run the DNC and ran the Hillary campaign. They hire other well-to-do white people to run ads aimed at the persuadables. What we argued in that uh, in our Democratic autopsy is the money should have been spent instead of finding spending millions of dollars to find a few moderate Republicans, if any of them still exist, what you should be spending your millions of dollars. And remember, Hillary totally outraised Donald Trump and had, by one report, five or six times as many staffers as Trump did. It's the way they spend the money. They should be spending it on mobilizing the base. They, was, uh, they should be mobilizing African-Americans and getting them to the polls, Latinos and getting them to the polls. They should be in every college town and getting young people, which is the most progressive demographic, to the polls. That's people 30 and under. But instead of spending money that way, the money, you know, how consultants get paid, they get paid a percentage of the ads that they run. Right. So all the money goes into the ads. And, the and they weren't gets, using cheap ads like you could find on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, they were, uh, you know, no, they or email the campaigns. Thing. They were buying television. Right. So, so the Democratic autopsy criticizes their lousy policy agenda, a corporate mealy-mouthed policy agenda that didn't mobilize or enthuse voters. That's what Hillary failed to do in 2016. And then the way that the money is spent, there was a downturn in black turnout in 2016. It was even lower than the turnout for John Kerry among African Americans in 2004. There was a wow. decline in Latino turnout. And many young people voted third party. And that has to do with lack of voter mobilization and lack of a progressive policy agenda that would get people under 30, they're right. by far. All that said, though, Jeff, uh, you yeah. know, Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump. Oh, I understand that. But it shouldn't have been close. Right. Again. Yeah, it should have been an absolute blowout. And I think course. it would have been. And, 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 you know, the good news here, Jeff, is, uh, you know, from what I'm hearing, the Progressive Caucus is growing. The Progressive Caucus is starting to have an impact. We, you're seeing Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi on occasion picking up these talking points from the Progressive Caucus and going forward with them. I think it's slowly starting to sink in. Well, the problem is... And a lot is, of people are getting, getting them, inserting themselves into the Democratic Party, a lot of progressives. Forgive my oh, interrupting. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Activism from the base is really helping. But keep in mind, these corporate forces in the Democratic Party are in a war against the progressive base. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, which provides affordable, private online counseling. When you sign up at BetterHelp.com best, you get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through text, voice, or video chat. And of course, they're LGBT-friendly. It's great for individuals or couples counseling for anything you're going through in life right now. And of course, in this political climate, who couldn't use a little extra help? When you get started, you fill out a question questionnaire so they can match you with a counselor who's perfect for you, and you can start counseling today. But if you decide you don't vibe with the therapist you're matched with, you can switch whenever you want. It's less expensive than in-person counseling, but you're still getting the same great help from licensed professionals. A lot of people are not comfortable talking to a therapist in person, or they simply don't have the time, but with better help, you connect from anywhere you are at home, work, or on the go, and if you have trouble affording it, BetterHelp even has financial aid available. You can 
sign up right now and save on quality professional therapy by going to betterhelp.com slash best. You can take a step towards supporting your own mental health and support this show at the same time by using our link to let them know we sent you. That's betterhelp.com slash best, and that link is in our show notes. And now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make sure we have a blue tsunami on November 6th. As we produce this episode, primaries wrapped up in four states, where altogether, 13 Justice Democrats were vying for congressional and gubernatorial nominations. If you're kicking yourself because you wish you'd taken more action to support progressive and liberal candidates in those primaries— Time to double down. Hawaii's primary is August 11th, and primaries in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Connecticut, and Vermont are on August 14th. Check out the links to our previous spotlights on these states, and then whatever state you live in, take action. Both Justice Democrats and brand new Congress offer get-out-the-vote online calling and texting tools with scripts on individual candidates, allowing you to talk to primary voters from wherever you are. This is a great way to make a real impact. We've included the links to both tools in the show notes. Today, we're going to talk about Alaska and Wyoming, which both have primaries coming up on August 21st. Although these are states where Democrats, let alone progressives, don't often thrive, there are a few candidates trying to change that this year. Alaska's current governor, former Republican and current independent Bill Walker, and his Democratic lieutenant governor are up for re-election this year. But former Senator Mark Begich, a solid Democrat, threw his hat in the ring, causing Walker to run as a petition candidate. This has created a three-way race that could divide left-leaning voters, and so things may get very ugly as Begich and Walker each try to knock each other out. In July, the expected Republican candidate had a five-point lead on Walker. Begich has the voting record of a relative moderate, but Walker was a former oil and gas lawyer with a long GOP history. Begich's running mate is Deborah Call, an Alaska native and former executive of multiple Alaska native organizations. Unfortunately, all candidates on both sides support the sale of drilling leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. As with every race for governor, the importance is that whoever holds the office will be involved in the state's redistricting process following the 2020 census. And although they only have one congressional district, it's important to remember that gerrymandering can affect state-level officeholders as well. Alaska's sole congressional seat is currently being held by anti-woman, anti-environment, anti-LGBT Republican Don Young, the longest-serving member of Congress. The two viable candidates running for the Democratic nomination are both political newcomers. Progressive Democrat Dimitri Sheehan supports improved Medicare for All, investments in renewable energy, and his campaign does not accept corporate PAC contributions. Independent Elise Galvin is a public schools advocate who supports investment in renewable energy and believes responsible natural resource development is possible, though she opposes the Pebble Mine Project. Alaska Democrats have an open primary, but your registration must have been received by July 22nd to participate. Early voting is going on right now, and we've included the link to the early voting locations in the show notes. Mailed ballot requests must be received by August 11th. Absentee ballots must be requested by August 20th, and completed ballots must be received by August 31st. We turn now to Republican-controlled Wyoming, where, believe it or not, the state Democratic Party is feeling optimistic. A few state legislative seats appear likely to swing to the Democrats, and others are at least plausible pickups. Wyoming's current governor, Republican Matt Mead, has reached his term limit, and six climate science-denying GOPers are in a tight primary race for the nomination. But there is a clear frontrunner in the Democratic primary— 
former state representative Mary Throne. She is the only candidate proposing the absolutely necessary tax increases to resolve Wyoming's deficit after years of cuts by Meade. But unfortunately, she's still pandering to Wyoming's energy sector. Her opponents, Rex Wild and Ken Kastner, both lean more towards renewables. Wild is advocating legalization of marijuana to increase tax revenue and tourism. And again, though Wyoming also only has one congressional district, making it notoriously hard to gerrymander, the governorship will affect state-level races and control over the state's legislature. Wyoming's one congressional seat is held by Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick Cheney. The Democrats eyeing Cheney's seat are Travis Helm and Greg Hunter. Hunter wants to expand Medicaid in the state in the short term and supports Medicare for All as a long-term solution. But this guy's from Wyoming, so when it comes to guns, he only supports more stringent requirements for AR-15s, not any ban of any kind. Hunter used to be a Republican, but switched parties in 2003 after the invasion of Iraq. His opponent, Travis Helm, has a similar political transition story, supports a public universal health care system, and keeping public lands under federal control. Wyoming's Senate seat is also up for grabs this year, but Gary Troner is the only Democratic candidate, so he will move on to November. Six Republicans are running for the GOP nomination, even though incumbent Republican John Barrasso is running for re-election. So far, 95% of Barrasso's fundraising has come from outside the state. If you're a Wyoming resident, your registration must have been received by August 6th to vote in the primary. However, Wyoming does offer election day registration and voting, so you have another chance. Absentee ballot requests must be made by August 20th, and completed ballots must be received by 7 p.m. on August 21st. We want to emphasize registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot requests and submission dates are different for each state, sometimes even each county. We highly suggest reviewing your state's information and voter ID laws at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you will be able to vote in both the primary and general elections. Now, we know you heard a lot of names and dates today, but we hope you'll take a moment to check the segment notes, which include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And today's Midterms Minute, just like every activism segment we produce, is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if building the bluest of blue waves is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting progressive candidates across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. If you go into any campaign office today, you'll see an army of college students making phone calls and stuffing envelopes. But we shouldn't think of this as just a modern phenomenon. Yeah, it's funny. We associate young people with the baby boomers or the modern era, but young people have always played a role in politics because American democracy has always needed boots on the ground. It's always needed labor and free labor and energetic labor, especially. So often young people play a key role because they're willing to do the the hard, dirty work of getting people to go out and vote. This is John Grinspan, curator of political history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Since the mid-19th century, most white men have been able to vote in the United States, and political parties have valued young men in particular for their energy and for their impressionability. 
Abe Lincoln said, you go out and recruit the shrewd wild boys just under age, that you want them before they can participate because you don't really want them making up their mind in an election. You want them committed Democrats or Republicans right, right. for a decade before. And generally, the best predictor of how a young man would vote would be how his father voted, right? Absolutely. This yeah. is partisanship is tied up with family identity, with region, with race, with class. It's people, most people inherit their party identities. And then once they voted for that first time, 95% vote for the same party in presidential elections over decades. So if a father convinces a son to vote a certain way, or if a sister convinces her brother to vote a certain way, they're often locked into that partisanship for life. But in the 19th century, it wasn't just family expectations that convinced young men to remain true to a party. Politics was public, and political parties tended to throw the biggest social parties in town. Uh, a rally in a small town might be the largest gathering a person ever sees. It would usually happen at 11 p.m. or midnight, and it would involve large groups of young men organized into political clubs, uh, maybe 100 people in a club, with lit torches marching down the street. There would be, you know, refreshments from ranging from, you know, whiskey and beer to roast ox or roast hog. Uh, there would be people speechifying on the sidelines, what they called boy orators at the time, who were as young as 12, but maybe in their early early 20s, on uh, soapboxes, giving speeches about the issues or about the parties. And the spectators would often be older people who are kind of watching young people engage in politics. Young people benefited from being politically active, but their views didn't have much influence on the policies of the parties they joined. The parties don't care all that much about their beliefs on the issues. The, the, <laughs> you know, the, the elites who are running these parties and making yeah. the nominations, they they want a political party run by 60-year-olds, but manned on the ground and fueled by 21-year-olds. So this is still a hierarch hierarchical culture where young people are expected to follow the lead often of adults or older people. That obedience, however, didn't last. After the Civil War, young people began to question party leadership and the direction of their country. There's always new generations of young people coming, and they are increasingly hostile to a political system that seems stuck in the Civil War era. That right. they, look at the, they look at this generation that kind of made their names and fought their battles during the Civil War, who dominate the political system, and also dominate much of the economic system as stuck in the past. And they this is an era when there's a real excitement for finding dinosaur bones, and they start to compare these parties <laughs> to, to fossils. And there's a great quote where they say, young people have no more interest in the issues in their parents than they do in the wars of extinct monsters whose bones are gathered in museums. That they, th There's a sense that the political system has stuck, and it's not paying attention to the needs and demands of young people in the 1870s or 1880s. It's arguing about 1861 over and over and over again. And they're still electing veterans in, at the beginning of the 20th century, right? McKinley, I guess, is the, the last one. I don't know. Yes, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, and veterans are running on what they did in it, during the Battle of Antietam in the 1890s, you know? And yeah. if, you're, if you're a 21-year-old voter in the 1890s, you weren't alive during Antietam. It doesn't, it doesn't mean as much to you. Right. So what happens to the parties when young people begin to not pay as much attention? Well, they freak out. They... Um, <laughs> Especially the Republican Party in the North, which had seen itself as the party of the young, as kind of a defining identity. When young people start to dabble with voting for the Democrats or, or making up their mind in each election, 
First, they scold young people and tell them they don't know what they're talking about. And then they they try to insist that they're the party of the independents and all good independents vote Republican. So they, <laughs> they, they try to use the rhetoric of independence without actually following through on it. But over the, the last decade or two of the 19th century, there starts to be a real movement for genuine political independence that new generations of young people who don't care about their father's issues or their mother's issues are making up their minds as elections come, as looking at both parties and, and choosing which, um, which candidate, which party they'd like to support. And this is really revolutionary, even more so than the emergence of third parties. Hmm. The idea of being a genuine independent wow. really changes American politics. And it comes from a young generation that's hostile to these, these kind of ossified, stuck old parties. The idea becomes that if you're a man enough, you'll make up your own mind, rather, whereas before, if you were man enough, you'd declare your loyalty to a party no matter what, right? Absolutely. And it is tied to masculinity, again, yeah. that independents are seen as wishy-washy and effeminate and not real men for most of the 19th century. And then at some point in the 1890s, the really strong, stable person looks at both parties and chooses their own, based on their own conscience, as opposed to following how their father voted or how their grandfather voted. Now, this must have been especially tricky for African-American voters, right, for whom the Republican Party was really their only refuge. How would they negotiate this? Yeah, African-Americans are in a real bind. I mean, in addition to the fact that there are there are large numbers of people in the South trying to completely disenfranchise them, and, and in the North, too, the party that has historically supported black people, the, the Republican Party, isn't often giving them much in exchange. Right. One great quote I love yep. from a, a reverend in, in Philadelphia who says, the Philadelphia's African-American community, it's time you were getting more for your political services. With all your speaking, organizing, parading in the streets, ballyhooing, holding mass meetings, voting, and sometimes fighting, what do you get? That's a fundamental question. What do you get for being a good Republican for, for 30 years? And what do you get if you're a woman in all this? Uh, the decades march by and still women are not allowed to vote. Do they become disenchanted or does this opening of independentism create a space for them? It absolutely does. One of the one of the really interesting things is the way women drive the push for independent voting and the way being distant from the two parties, being denied the right to vote, actually allows women an in to be really consequential and influential going into the 20th century and the progressive era. That men are, most men are trapped within this political system and they have biases for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party and their same old fights going back to when they were children. Because women were denied the right to vote, they tend to think more broadly about political reform and change. And so they might be rethinking social services for, for poor people or how to protect child laborers or these, these kind of bigger issues that the parties just have not managed to address. And also, as there's a movement for women's suffrage kind of building over the 1890s and 1900s, they really cleverly play the independent approach to see which party will be more supportive uh -huh. to them. That uh -huh. They learn that they can't rely on any one party ever. And so in election and election, state by state, they, they manage to kind of court both parties and say, well, who's going to support us more? Interesting. Despite all the courting by the by the parties, people begin turning away from voting after 1900. I think this is something that really surprises people who sort of believe that American history keeps getting better and better is that sometime uh, around the beginning of the 20th century, people decided, yeah, this two-party system is not really doing much for me. But were young people a part of that that transformation? I'd say young people are the driving force huh. behind it. That mm. 
there's large political changes going on, but one of the key ones is that as people, especially young people, break from this really diehard partisanship, they don't see as much reason to go turn out and vote. And and so independent voting is much better for making up one's mind each election and thinking through the issues. But in terms of that big mass participation in those public events and those high turnouts, partisanship was really working well. And as they they break up this kind of partisan culture and support independence, and also as they break up the idea that politics should be public and begin to support the idea that it's a private matter of individual conscience, not necessarily to be discussed at the dinner table, but to be decided behind a voting curtain, turnouts start to fall. And there's less of a kind of sense of a national public campaign each election that that it's too excitable, too silly, too often too working class, too um, driven by what they called nonsense at the time, um, and too, too drunk. Those people who feel that the political system isn't reflecting the best values for America deliberately make an effort to change political behavior. That more than the issues, more than any ideological question, they say they want to change how Americans engage democracy. And so over the 1880s and over the 1890s, they really construct a new way of engaging in politics that is much more private than public, much more independent than partisan, and much more restrained than passionate. More reading than talking. They they actually say more more thinking, less shouting. Yeah. But at the same time, it means shutting down those big demonstrations, shutting down the barbecues, shuttering the saloons, not buying fireworks for for your marchers, um, and it really it does end up almost killing this kind of folk culture that Americans had created over the 19th century. So that by the early 20th century, these big mass parades and engagements really don't exist in politics the way they used to. So what parallels do you see today uh, between sort of the resurgence of uh, young people in the political sphere in, in this earlier era? Well, th- there are a few things, and obviously it's a very different time and things things are very different. The first is that political engagement today is fairly good or at least improving over how it had been in much of the 20th century for young people, that we tend to kind of tut-tut and shake our fingers, but Millennials are voting at higher rates than baby boomers or Gen Xers did. And so it, it's easy to blame the young, but I, I do think there's, there's good news there. Um, I think in terms of the mobilization around gun violence and, and the, the students at Parkland, one of the things that I found interesting looking at young people in the Gilded Age is that a generation of young people who thought their political system wasn't working for them and were kind of raised to believe that it was corrupt and, and vulgar was actually much more motivated to make change than a generation raised to think that their political system was was wholly imperfect and huh. untouchable. So maybe there's an argument to be made that these 17-year-olds who have basically believed that democracy has been broken to some degree their whole life they might be more engaged and, and more willing to um, go after sacred cows or, or rethink things than, than a generation in the 20th century who had a, a, like a sunnier sense of American democracy. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, 
You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. There was a huge upset in the Democratic primary last night here in New York. Longtime incumbent Joe Crowley, the fourth-ranking congressional Democrat, suffered a stunning defeat at the hands of first-time candidate Democratic Socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is only 28 years old. And many are hailing Cortez as a rising star on the political landscape. But in reality, her policy positions are actually downright scary. This is your modern Democratic Party. Government subsidized housing for everybody. Tuition, free colleges. She wants to abolish ICE and, of course, impeach President Trump. Casia Cortez did denounce capitalism. She uses the lingo Absolutely. of the far left and Marxist, the kind of stuff you hear at you know Thursday night seminars at, at well, university. Uh, yeah, people have written a lot about how she's moved the Overton window to the left. She ran on policies um, like abolish ICE, Medicare for all. And with her victory in the primary, other politicians in the Democratic Party have come out and adopted those positions or been more open about their support for them. I think that what we're seeing now is for the first time people on the left actually using Overton window consciously as a strategy, talking about it, trying to influence politics in the Democratic Party by consciously shifting where this sort of center of acceptable opinion is. We should protect families that need our help, and that is not what ICE is doing today, and that's why I believe you should get rid of it, start over, and build something that actually works. We should abolish ICE. We should create something better, something different. I think there's no question that we've got to critically re-examine ICE and its role and the way that it is being administered and the work it is doing, and we need to probably think about starting from scratch. They saw that some of the failures of the Democratic Party in the 2016 election were often about staying timidly within this consensus, even when the base actually might like to go further left and um, and look at more progressive policies. So they've been a lot more bold about striking out with much more daring statements of those policies. One of the main reasons that the Overton window keeps getting used is that one of the activists and writers who was talking about Abolish Ice particularly really adopted that term very enthusiastically, Sean McAlwee whose name on Twitter is Overton Window Mover. I think that moving the Overton window involves simply introducing ideas into the public with a clear, coherent vision and getting people excited about those ideas and interested in those ideas. Writer and activist Sean McAuley. And it turns out that when you introduce people to the idea of abolishing a fascist agency dedicated to ethnic cleansing, it's actually quite popular. McAuley clearly does not shy away from extreme progressive formulations outside the Overton window. He just wants those extreme positions to pull the window to the left, whereas now, he says, it's monopolized by the right. 
So a great example is the recent sort of immigration debates that happened in Congress, which was you had this instance in which this representative, Goodlot, introduced a very, very extreme right-wing bill. And then you had this moderate, in finger quotes, parts of the Republican caucus introduce their proposal. And then this was referred to in most media outlets as a, quote, compromise bill. But of course, no Democrats supported the compromise bill. Sometimes you all repeat it, that it's a compromise, but it is not a compromise. Nancy Pelosi. It may be a compromise with the devil, but it's not a compromise with the Democrats. It was a compromise within the Republican caucus. So I imagine a world in which Pramila Jayapal and Mark Pocan introduced legislation to abolish ICE and pay reparations to detainees, and then some more centrist members of the Democratic conference introduce a bill that says what we should really do is dramatically rein in ICE, investigate human rights abuses, and introduce a comprehensive path to citizenship. And that is referred to as a compromise bill. As soon as abolish ICE becomes a mainstream position within the Democratic Party, I am going to argue that we should abolish ICE and pay reparations to detainees and also decriminalize migration. And, you know, when that becomes a centrist proposal, you know, I'll think of something even more left-wing. Ah, so you are really talking about the Overton window. You're talking about going for asks that you don't anticipate you'll get anytime soon, like reparations, in order to make less radical positions that are still far to the left of what has now become the norm more palatable. Exactly. The one thing I would... Add, though, if, if I may note the limitations of the idea, is that it is not a substitute for doing work. At the end of the day, abolish ice had to become something that people showed up to protests holding signs in favor of. Like, you have to have a movement behind it, because if you don't have people yelling in the streets, people won't take it seriously. I think there's just a temptation among people who solely understand politics through Twitter, of believing that they're doing radical social action by saying something extreme. But the reality is, is that to the extent that the movement gains power, it comes from people who are organized. So the Overton window is a tool, but it has to be used in concert with indirect action to be powerful. This is the thing that makes me so crazy, is, is when I hear people, uh, you know, uh, particularly in the morning shows on MSNBC, you know, Stephanie Rule and these other folks talking about, uh, you know, the far left, you got to worry about the far left. The Democratic Party, ha- you know, if, they, if the far left takes over, there's going to be a big problem. Look at the polls, right? This is a poll that was conducted uh, in 2016 by GBA Strategies on behalf of the Progressive Change Institute. It's a serious, solid poll by a reputable polling company. These are positions that Stephanie Rule and, and many of the others on the on, on MSNBC and and I, I have great admiration for her as a reporter and as a uh, as a you know a former uh, financial person. I mean you know she's she's great, but she's wrong on this. You know talking about the the far left in the Democratic Party. 
These are your far left positions and how much support they have in the United States, which would indicate that they're actually centrist positions, not far left positions. Do you want to allow the government to negotiate drug prices? 79% of Americans say yes. Should students get the same low interest rates as big banks? In other words, student loans at 1% or 2% instead of 7 or 9%. 78% of Americans say yes. Should we have universal free pre-kindergarten? 77% of Americans say yes. Should we have fair trade that protects workers, the environment, and jobs rather than the so-called free trade? 75% of Americans say yes. This is of all parties, right? Should we end tax loopholes for corporations that ship jobs overseas? By the way, those loopholes were just expanded with the Republican tax scam. Should we end those loopholes? 74% of Americans say yes. Should we end gerrymandering? 73% of Americans say yes. Should we allow Medicare for all? Single-payer health care in the United States. Now, again, you know, the morning shows on MSNBC would characterize that as an extreme left position. Seventy one percent of Americans say yes. By the way, every other developed country in the world has already done this. It's not rocket science. Should we disclose corporate spending on politics and lobbying? Transparency. Seventy one percent of Americans say yes. Should the NSA be required to get warrants before they spy on us? Seventy one percent say yes. Should we spend four hundred billion dollars a year, a modest sum on infrastructure projects? Right. I mean, this is this is Bernie Sanders. Seventy one percent of Americans say yes. Should we have debt free college at all public universities? Seventy one percent of Americans say yes. Stephanie and others. This is not the far left. This is the center of America. Should we expand Social Security benefits? Seventy percent of Americans say yes. Should we have a full employment act? Should the government be the employer of last resort, as Franklin Roosevelt was the last president to do with the WPA and the CCC when, when capitalism fails like it did in 2008 and hundreds of the millions of people are thrown out of work, 700,000 people a month for month after month for a year? Should the government step in and say, if you can't find a job, we will create a job for you? 70% of Americans say yes. Should we retrain coal miners and oil workers for clean energy jobs? In other words, should we be promoting clean energy, wind, so 70% of Americans say yes. Should we end tax deductions for fines that Wall Street bankers pay when they rip us off? Did you know that, that they can deduct that, the fines that they pay? 70% of Americans say yes, of course. This is just common sense. These are all, you know, should, the, should we have transparency in trade negotiations? 66% of Americans say yes. Should tipped workers get the full uh, full minimum wage? 64% of Americans say yes. Should we eliminate the Electoral College? 65% of Americans say yes. Should community college be free nationwide? 63% of Americans say yes. Should all corporate political spending be required to be approved by shareholders? 66% of Americans say yes. Should you require a special prosecutor in every case that a police officer kills someone? 61% of Americans say yes. Should we guarantee net neutrality? Now, keep in mind, this was two years ago this study was done. The support for net neutrality has gone up since then, because back then, most people didn't even know what it was. 61% of Americans say yes, guarantee net neutrality. These are not far-left positions. This is the center of America. Should we tax the rich at the the 50% rate that Ronald Reagan first took taxes to after he dropped them from 74%? Should we tax the rich at the, at simply at the 50% rate? 
59% of Americans say, yes, tax the rich. This is not the far left. Should we have a minimum guaranteed income? 59% of Americans say, yes. Should we break up the big banks? 58% of Americans say, yes. Should there be public matching funds for small dollar donations? 58% of Americans say, yes. Should we break up the big banks? 55% say, yes. Should we tax the rich? This was a, a broader, simply tax the rich, millionaires and billionaires. 54% say yes. Should there be a financial transactions tax to fund many of these things? 50% of Americans say yes. And it goes on from there. This is not the far left. I'm sorry. This is America. We are being so badly served by our media. And frankly, I, I think it's that, you know, when you, when you reach that level in, in the media, you know, you're basically hanging out with people. You're, you're, you become a millionaire. You hang out with millionaires. And, and you know, and what do you what do you see on on the morning shows on MSNBC? Uh, you know, with great frequency, Republicans and the Democrats that you see typically are the corporate Democrats. You very rarely see actual progressives, even though they're they're nearly a majority in the Democratic Party. And progressive policies are supported by a majority of Americans, virtually without exception. You write, if the political system is a dinosaur, why is it now coming back to life? And you see politics coming back to life in the form of people like the UK's Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn. How do you see the political system coming back to life in the form of Jeremy Corbyn? Yeah, well, so that was so interesting. So I, I've been moving in sort of um, think tank, left wing think tank circles for the, the last, I'd say, five years or so. And um, and the the real vogue amongst um, those groups has been um, about saying uh, mainstream politics has had its day. Representative democracy is a dinosaur. You can't put jump leads on dinosaurs. I remember one commentator saying, you know, this thing is dead. We need a new system. And then Corbyn comes along. And I think that Corbyn was mirrored by Bernie Sanders in the U.S. Um, and then suddenly, um, and this comes back to what I was saying at the beginning about the reaction of, of left leftist um, readers to, to the book, is that then there's this um, grinding of gears. Actually, suddenly, it seems that if Corbyn were to become prime minister, things wouldn't be so bad after all. And actually, maybe mainstream democratic politics, maybe the system itself is not the problem. It's who's in charge is the problem and actually and i think that i think i could you could almost sort of see the gears turning in people's minds thinking actually is it the system itself that's the problem or is it who's actually in you know in charge within that system so is it democratic is it representative democracy um that's the problem or is it who just happens to have been voted in over the last three to four decades so I think there's been a real reappraisal, and I think that that's still ongoing, really, about um, about deciding whether it's the whether, what we think about the big systems. And I think that's really what made me write the book. So I suddenly thought, well, the left really we have to decide what we think about mainstream democracy. Do, do we want to get rid of it, or or would it be okay if the right people were in power? 
We are speaking with writer, lecturer, BBC radio broadcaster and producer Elian Glazer. She is author of Anti-Politics on the Demonization of Ideology, Authority and the State. You can find out more about her book at her website, elianglazer.org. I want to ask you about the media because you have this very interesting paragraph on it. You write that in the all-consuming and all-erasing daily news churn as Guardian readers reload the homepage once again and Twitter users scroll down their feeds, it's difficult to get hold of the subtext, to feel situated in a historical moment to grasp how we got to be in this predicament and what its characteristics signify in the grand scheme of things. This book is a reflective intervention at a critical juncture. It makes the case that we need to ask the big questions, think clearly, and anatomize our impasse if we are to strategize our way out of it. How much is the confusion you see as you write surrounding political authority, the kind of democracy we want, and the role of the state in the 21st century, driven by, again using your words, the all-consuming and all-erasing daily news churn? To what degree is any obsession with daily news keeping us ignorant of the major changes taking place over years rather than minuscule changes that happen over days, if not hours? Can we not see the forest because the news only covers the trees? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think I mean I'm I'm a big believer in mainstream journalism, you know, radio stations and um newspapers and traditional journalism and I think that that journalism is what holds power to account and it's being really seriously eroded by the advent of um platform capitalism, the big tech giants um and um you know journalists are being laid off around the world i think that's the so i think that that i suppose that in the past the the healthy ecosystem of right wing papers and left wing papers um you know that mirrored the existence of a proper democratic ideological debate um in politics and i think that ecosystem has really been um is really shrinking and i think at the same time you have um these very divisive and polarized debates on social media um that's um you know full of fake news as we know um and um full of inaccuracy and um misinformation and but yet you know going back to the the our original um um when we're talking about um ideology that it seems like there's a healthy um debate going on online uh but it but it's it's a proxy for proper democratic debate it's it's very oppositional but it's not oppositional in a productive democratic way it's just people are in their echo chambers talking to each other um so yeah i think and i think also the other thing about 24 hour news and rolling news is that I really feel like we've lost history. We've actually lost our historical perspective. Um, I know this anecdotally that I, I can't remember what what I did last week, but it's almost as if that tendency uh, is is mirrored in the culture that we we can't actually remember. We don't have a sort of temporal sense. So, for example, when we're talking about the welfare state, there's a sense that oh, the post-1945 um, settlement or the New Deal, you know, these more equitable, um, uh, sort of progressive times, you know, the, there's a sense that the, these are luxuries that we can't go back to, that, that, that we can't turn the clock back. So we sort of 
lost the sense of, of political possibility. There's this thing, the Overton window, this the phrase that describes um, the kind of political uh, possibilities that we think are realistic um, or that the public feels are realistic. I think the Overton window is, has, has closed because we've got we've lost the sense of, of, hist- of what, what we did before and, and therefore what we can do again. We've just heard clips today, starting with Start Making Sense, speaking with Thomas Frank, author of a new book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, about how the Democrats lost so much in such a short time. The Tom Hartman program spoke with Jeff Cohen about the Independent Democratic Autopsy Report. Backstory discussed some history of the relationship between youth and political parties that is reminiscent of what we're seeing today. On the media, talked about the Overton window and strategies for getting fringe ideas into the mainstream. Tom Hartman then went down a long list of policies that are often framed as radically left that are actually supported by a majority of the country. And finally, we just heard This Is Hell speaking with Elian Glazer about why the left must return to politics and power. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. Just a quick refresher that before I went on vacation, there was a conversation going on in the voicemail section about progressive philosophy, what it is, how far back into history it goes and whether or not we need to have a firm grasp of that history if we want to build a new progressive movement today. So now, picking up on that discussion from where we left off a week and a half ago, we'll now hear from some of you. Hey, um, I would like to start with a colloquialism that is absolutely necessary in this case. Long-time listener, first-time caller, love the show. Um, you were talking about progressive politics and the definition of, and I do believe that brevity is worth its weight in gold. So what I have, the way that I approach it, and I consider myself a progressive, is that I use the scientific method to ascertain what is the reality that I'm facing and then apply common decency. So two things, Jay. Scientific method, common decency. Those are the two legs that this beast we call progressivism uses to move around as far as I'm concerned. Scientific method, common decency. I hope that catches on. This is Tom from Toronto. Love your show. Keep it up, man. Hi, this is Dee Dee from Philly. Just calling to weigh in on the conversation about the history of progressive politics being articulated and catching on, I guess to say. On July 19th, Tom Hartman had a caller to his show who was basically referring to, well, not basically, clearly referring to people who were migrating here to the U.S. as invaders and those who do not support immigration as a legal process as traitors. And Tom stated that no elected Democrats were suggesting open borders and stated specifically that any Dem who would uh, should be voted out. He conceded that anyone who would promote open borders could be considered a traitor and summarily terminated the ability to even think that that kind of big progressive push uh, was possible and to even push for it to fall in the inevitable middle ground. On the same day, Fair actually released a episode clip 
that responded to exactly that thing, saying, hey, you know, we should probably have open borders. So what we see in these two clips is like attention. So I'm going to use a clunky term that I've invented just for the purpose of this conversation. The basic term here is neuropolitical elasticity, right? So the idea here is that when we start our political life, we have a lot of neuropolitical elasticity like a child. So we may be willing to go very extreme based upon the current mores of the moment. And so we might accept gay marriage in the 70s. But then in the 90s, we're not able to accept non-binary gender representations. And the velocity at which we're able to assimilate new concepts into our political vocabulary actually decreases over time. And so we go from these firebrand progressives, basically to liberals, and then eventually down to rank and file Democrats as the conversation progresses on without us. And our neuropolitical elasticity reaches its breaking point. So you're never going to see a through line of history that is progressive because over time, those very people are going to reach their own kind of Overton window in both the broad sense with society, but then also personally for their own personal politics. So the people who were progressive in the 70s were liberal for the 90s and the progressives for 2018 are doing exactly what's inconceivable to Tom Hartman, who was a progressive of the 70s and a liberal for the 90s and a rank and file Democrat for today. A great one, but still a rank and file Democrat. I know that this is a little bit long. I'm hoping that it kind of explains a little bit better why having a through line in a history doesn't really make sense for progressivism either on the personal or the broad scale. And I also want to say I'm a little bit concerned that we are placing a premium here on having that kind of through line and saying that that's going to draw people to the progressive cause and keep them there when the initial call seems to suggest that, hey, uh, without this, you guys can't build a movement. And yet there seems to be this quiet lull historically between the 30s and like the 70s or 80s of progressivism, if that's true, and we don't have that kind of through line in history, then how is it possible that we've been able to build that coalition after 40 years of no progressivism apparently at all? I want to interrogate whether or not that makes a lot of sense. Thanks a lot and keep it tidy. Hey, Jay, it's Nick from California. I wanted to just call in with my idea for the underlying philosophy for a progressive society. My idea for a progressive society is a society that maximizes well-being, specifically for humans, the only truly sapient creature that we know of. And that doesn't mean that we can just trash the environment, even though what I'm proposing is sort of humanist, because we've learned that the only way for humans to have well-being is to live within our ecosystem and how well-being within the biosphere. I often think that the right um, is often correct that engendering a spirit of hard work and responsibility is one component for having well-being. However, the right leaves out the need for us to care about each other. So, for instance, when we were hunter-gatherers, we didn't survive because we were the strongest or had the biggest claws. We survived because we were clever, but also we were pretty good at helping each other. A progressive vision of society must take into consideration that 
society together, we need to help and care for each other. So、um, again, Jay, I agree with you that this needs to be done via trial and error and figuring out what maximizes well-being and what does not, and that might even change over time. Okay, Jay, thanks for all the good work. Take care. Bye. Hi, my name is Angela Redding, avid listener, based out of Sacramento, California. I just got done listening to episode one one nine nine, criticizing a society that breeds depression. Ah, great episode. The only thing that I have is I kind of had a question that evolved at the end of the episode, it, talking about you know criticizing the fact that we have a capitalistic culture that. Inherently breathes down our neck. Purchase, 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 and, and it was a very beautiful thought collection of things. Is something that I've kind of been battling recently, and it was, it was a beautiful evolution of thought. But then, when we get to the end, the first thing that we go into is Dollar Shave Club, <laughs> as as you know, an advertiser. And I understand you guys have to get money somewhere, and you know people should donate as much as possible. But how do we truly escape it? Living in a capitalistic society, when even the show that we trust to bring us good perspective has to kind of fall prey to the same thing. Just a thought. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. And we had some great voicemails today. I'm going to、uh, respond to all of them. Just. As rapid fire as I can. So first of all, Tom from Toronto,、uh, scientific method plus common decency equals progressivism. Sign me up. I love it.、It's、nice, short, pithy,、uh, gets the point across. Secondly, Didi from Philly, great message. I, I am not counterpointing her, her broad points or anything like that. I just want to focus in on, on one. Uh, topic she brought up about Tom Hartman and his thinking on borders and immigration, and I, I just want to say that I've been listening to that dude for a long time, and I think that his thoughts on borders goes much deeper than just as Didi sort of suggested, like just an old school way of thinking. I, I've been listening to Tom for, I mean, I, I probably heard him on the radio 15 years ago, and I used to listen. To his whole show every day, and so I've heard him talk on this subject before, but not in a while. So if I had to venture a guess, which I do, I would guess that his thoughts on borders are not not just a leftover remnant of '70s style progressivism. He talks about the defined borders of counties and states and and countries as coming directly out of evolutionary. Human psychology that humans are built to work in small groups very well, and then progressively larger groups, maintained by structures such as governments, but that borders are necessary to create defined areas over which defined groups of people can have independence and control. So even though humanity crosses borders seamlessly, political divisions that create Countries have a purpose 
not just for the political elite or the capitalist or anything like that, that, that they actually serve a pur- purpose for human psychology based on how people have evolved to understand their place in the world and that and that sort of thing. So you may still argue that that's an outdated way of thinking. I just want to point out that I'm pretty sure his thoughts on borders and immigration goes a lot deeper than it may appear on the surface. Okay, third, Nick from California was talking about how conservatives are usually good at promoting individual personal traits like having a good work ethic but always fall flat when it comes to talking about other positive things that are more communally based. And where this conversation usually goes is progressives accusing conservatives of not caring about people, not wanting to help people, not wanting for poor people to have access to any kinds of services, and so on and so on. And um, Nick's call got me thinking about it, and, and I just sort of went down a little mental exercise trying to understand the conservative perspective on this. And in this case, I think it is worthwhile to believe what conservatives say their position is, what they say is that they don't want the government providing community services. They want churches and nonprofits offering those community services instead. And that way of thinking might have made some amount of sense a hundred or more years ago when almost literally every person in the country went to church and was a member of a community that maybe could have built services to provide for the needs of the people in that community. Ultimately, I think it fails because we've watched it fail. You go back to the pre-New Deal era when, I I can't remember what the number is, if it was 30% or half, some amazingly high number of elderly people were in poverty because there was no uh, universal safety net like Social Security to keep them above the poverty line. So, We've already watched that system fail before. We know that government can provide those services, make sure that no one falls through the cracks because they can be applied universally instead of piecemeal community by community. But for the sake of having the debate, I think it's important to recognize that for the most part, conservatives believe in building community. They believe in supporting their neighbors They just don't think it should be done through the government. So rather than accusing them of being unfeeling, uncaring monsters who don't care if their neighbors live or die, I prefer to accuse them of being misinformed and misguided if well-meaning people who are trying to do the right thing and help people but are going about it in a completely wrong way that will inevitably leave people out and allow people to fall through the gaps through no fault of their own. So you can wish all you want that services were provided by churches and nonprofits and community groups, but it doesn't mean that that is ever going to turn out to be the best way to provide those services. That that comes back to the philosophy of progressivism conversation. So much of progressive philosophy is built on finding the thing that actually works the best, not just doing the thing you wish worked the best. Okay, now finally, Angela from Sacramento. Basically, how do we free ourselves from the downsides of capitalism while we're all trapped in capitalism? Man, welcome to my world. Uh, People in my position are very aware of, of this paradox we find ourselves in. Angela did mention that people should be donating as much as they can to the news outlets that they depend on. 
And basically what it comes down to is you just have to have a big enough or generous enough audience to do that. And not everyone does. So right now, that's just the position I'm in. We couldn't do what we do without ads. Uh, it would be a much more stripped down version of the show. We couldn't do midterms minutes or activism. We probably wouldn't have much of a social media presence. A lot of things would go away without uh, ad money to support those things. So in the meantime, I will just uh, point out that my philosophy on uh, having ads on the show is that I try to focus on products and services that either are not products at all. So I, I, I prefer services as much as I can. And when it comes to products, I like to promote products that people are going to need anyway. Like I'm a pretty solid minimalist myself, but I still buy shaving products. So, you know, Angela brought up Dollar Shave Club, like people are going to need to buy shaving products for the most part. So that's the type of product I don't mind promoting as much. There are all kinds of products that I turn down and say I don't want to support. I mean, there's a hundred or a thousand, I don't know how many companies are out there whose entire business model is pay us a subscription fee and we'll send you a box of random crap every month. Like <laughs> that's their whole business. And so I, I said like blanket no on all that. I, I certainly don't want to promote the random acquisition of things you definitely don't need. So Hopefully, from the ads you hear on the show, you see a pattern that they fall into sort of one of two categories of generally services that are not specifically consumption-based services, or they are core products that people are probably going to buy anyway. So that's, that's the middle ground that I have found for myself right now. But please, as Angela said, you know, how do we get from where we are to where we want to go while we're sort of, you know, stuck, like we're, we're trapped within capitalism while trying to find a path to something new? Um, this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time. All suggestions are welcome. If you have any thoughts about how this show or any show like it could do better in this realm, I would love to hear it. So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog, and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.